Shining a light on autism and life on the spectrum. Welcome to My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. A podcast breaking down barriers, stigma and misconceptions around autism. And now, here's your neurologically different host, Orion Kelly. Welcome and thanks for listening to My Friend Autism. I'm Orion Kelly and I'm autistic. But what's critical to understand is that I'm just one person on the autism spectrum. So if you've met one person on the spectrum, well, you've met one person on the spectrum. No two autistic people are the same. We have individual challenges and gifts. My purpose is to empower you with knowledge, education and growth opportunities through open, honest and engaging conversations on autism. This podcast seeks to break down stigmas and misconceptions around autism while providing real insights into life on the spectrum. My aim is to have open conversations that inform and engage and ultimately make the world a better place for autistic people. My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. Join the conversation now at the Orion Kelly Facebook page. My guest on this episode is Travis Saunders. Travis is an education consultant, autism advocate, public speaker, and host of the ABC podcast, The Parenting Spectrum. Travis, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Orion. Before we kind of talk about the podcast, just for those that may be unaware of your story, do you mind telling us your connection to autism and I guess telling us a bit about you? Yeah, sure. I think um, my story with autism is quite fascinating because it actually extends way before even going to teachers college. I started to develop a love and a passion for educating and changing others' lives for something that actually occurred to me when I was at school. You see, I've got a a, a tick on my face and on my neckline, and this particular tick comes and goes as I get stressed. Now, as a young boy growing up in primary school, it wasn't around much at all. But as I got to high school, my anxiety increased and the tick started to develop and have a life of its own. And there wouldn't be a day go by that I wasn't bullied when I was at high school. And so I started to learn what it was like to be different and to feel very, very different from my peers. And that's what led to my love of education. And so fast forward 20 odd years, I've had a career in education in primary schools and secondary schools and in private enterprise. And I've taught children on the autism spectrum all over the world, including the UK, New Zealand, Singapore and Australia. And so I've worked in various roles in welfare and as a behaviour specialist through uh, things such as an education department behaviour advisor, acting assistant principal of behaviour and human resources, welfare coordinator, lots of different year-level coordinator roles and careers counsellor as well, supporting students with different needs. And so my connection with autism and education is obviously quite vast, but from that, I've also uh, gone into some advocacy. And so I've appeared in the media more than 100 times talking about autism and education and and my, my role as a parent and how I see my role in terms of being able to advocate for my son. And I've 
become the presenter and producer of The Parenting Spectrum, which is the ABC podcast about autism and family life. And I now run workshops and do keynote presentations in schools and I, I develop them for, for students and also for teachers, also for disability support professionals and allied health professionals and also parents. But first and foremost, I'm a dad and I've got an incredible partner, Fiona, who's the co-host of The Parenting Spectrum and we've got an incredible son and his name is Patch and Patch is autistic and he's proudly autistic and he changes the lives of everyone he meets. And he's such an amazing little boy. Now, Patch, he requires very substantial support, but like all children, strives when he's given opportunities and understanding to succeed. And I guess he's my best mate. And we've even cycled 5,600 kilometres from one side of America to the other on a semi-recumbent tandem bicycle, which is a pretty cool thing to have done. It really is an extraordinary story. You're not wrong. And you're kind of a, a shining light or an inspiration for people like me. You know, the reason why I'm doing my, you know, my, my humble podcast is to, to share my story, to, to let people know that, you know, I'm proud of it. I'm, uh, even though I, I really f- genuinely believe and feel I'm one of the few adults diagnosed that w- wants to out themselves, you know, it's like the new coming out autism adulthood diagnosis, but I feel like mm. it's really important to, to tell people, you know, I'm autistic, I'm proud of it. Just like you said, exactly right. You know, hey, so Patch and I may have different uh, care levels, uh, and I'm, I'm certain that that's true, but we're not dissimilar. You know, my strengths, for one reason or another, is what I'm doing right now. And this this is why I thought, well, if I want to make a difference, I'll do this, and this is my strength. And prior to a diagnosis, you're right, the majority of my life was, all my life was really doing was was highlighting my you know, my deficiencies or, you know, my, you know, highlighting me as however people want to label it, bad person or rude or arrogant or whatever, when in fact, it was just not giving me the opportunity to shine and to thrive and, and you know, to use my, my, my strengths. And I hope, you know, as I do this podcast, you know, people like, people like Patch and other, uh, you know, autistic kids can listen to it and go, hey, here's a guy, he's got autism you know, he hasn't let the deficiencies get him down. He's worked hard over his entire life. He's, you know, and, he, and he's achieved what he wanted to achieve because everyone wants to achieve different things. But I'm doing something and, you know, I'm, I'm achieving something I wanted to achieve. And really, if, if anything, you know, people like Patch can just think, you know what, it doesn't matter what it is. If what's your thing, you can do it. Someone says no. I say rubbish. You can do it, whatever your thing is. And we all have a thing. So... Yeah, I just that you know your story obviously resonates with me being an adult diagnosis and a life of a life of bullying and and also you know like most people say two lives really there was the pre-diagnosis life and where you just felt completely you know, lost and out of place and, and and you just didn't know what what you were doing here and you didn't feel part of your friends and your family or oh, not that I really mm-hmm. had, had any friends and then you have your your, your post-diagnosis life which you kind of re, you're kind of learning to relive again so for people like your son and for you know young autistic people have given you've just done phenomenal stuff to bring awareness you know I'm <laughs> I'm in awe and I'm doing my best to use my skills to make a difference but hopefully for people uh, like patch and autistic kids they can they can see it and they can hear it and they can feel like this is a strength built world not a deficiency built world and that's our that's our problem at the moment, really. Well, yeah, absolutely all right. I mean, look, I'll never forget uh, sitting in an office with a therapy specialist and a small team when Patrick 
was very, very young. And they were going through a bit of a tick list, a checklist of uh, the things that he was having difficulty with. But they were talking about it in, in such a deficit way. And Patch was actually hearing this. And I had to get up and walk out of the room and I burst into tears. And from that moment on, we've changed our dialogue, the way that we talk about disability and the way our team is structured and the way that they actually communicate with our son. And I'll never forget, we were living in rural New South Wales and I met a young autistic man, he was in his mid-20s. Mid and he'd been out sailing with a carer and I was sitting next to his dad. And my partner, Fiona, was out with Patch on this little 12-foot skiff and she was actually helping him and assisting him with his sailing. Anyway, this young man in his mid-20s, he kept coming in and he kept saying, Travis, 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 Dad says there's nothing I can't do. Dad says there's nothing I can't do. And his dad would turn to him and he'd say, you know what, Trent, there is absolutely nothing you can't do. And he'd say, hey, Dad, Dad, can I go out on that sailing boat? Can I, can I have a go? And, and Dad would say, hey, look, you're almost there. You're almost there. I reckon a few more lessons and you'll be out there sailing by yourself. There is nothing you can't do. And so Trent would come in and out and every 10 minutes or so he'd come in and he'd chat to me again and he'd, and he'd say, hey, there's nothing I can't do. There's nothing I can't do. And I remember driving away that day and I remember reflecting on that early meeting that we'd had with those specialists in that room when they were talking about what my son couldn't do and, and trying to actually help him grow and develop. And I remember thinking, that's not the right methodology. We need to be concentrating on those strengths and interests. And it was around the same time that the ICANN network had really started to kick off and they were looking at those strengths and interests and promoting those and supporting children to have self-belief. And I remember thinking, what is the way that Patch learns? Now, when we look at the way that students learn, we look at are they a visual learner, are they auditory, are they a read writer, are they kinesthetic? Now, Many students are obviously visual learners, not so much for Patch. He was an auditory learner and he was kinesthetic. Auditory, he loved music. He loved those instructions, those verbal instructions from mum and dad, and he was able to carry out some of those tasks. Kinesthetically, he was like a pinball in a pinball machine. He could not stop and he loved to move. And we actually saw this as a real strength. And so we did a lot of teaching on the, on the trampoline, and that's when he would start to verbalise a lot of, the, a lot of the, the concepts that we were teaching him and the curriculum that we were teaching. But at this stage in his life, he wasn't really happy and we were kind of disconnected as a family unit. And, and we started to think, what is it that Patch is good at? So what are his strengths and how can we use the way he learns to increase those interests and those strengths and increase the number of positive associations that he was having? were actually happening in his life. And so one thing led to another and we purchased what was called a semi-recumbent tandem because Patch loved to go uh, fast and so he loved the flow of air going past his, past, past his face and we'd learnt this very early on. I'd take him, him on the front of a little motorbike on a friend's paddock and realised that he loved this. And so we started to think, okay, he loves the movement, he loves outdoors, so he loves plants and he stims on plants and he loves the feel of them and we think it's an absolutely fantastic thing and we embrace that about him. And he loves camping. And so how can we combine all this together? So I bought a bicycle where he sat on the front, I sat on the back. 
And then we started to go for these little bike rides around this little town. Now, five kilometres turned into 20, turned into 40, 50, 60 kilometres on the weekend. We were camping in the lounge room. We were having an absolute ball. He was starting to be happy for what we can actually, when we reflect back on it, for the first time in many, many years, he was starting to smile again and he was embracing education and embracing learning. And so Fiona was away that weekend and, she, and she'd come home and I had a map on the wall and I'd mapped out this route across America. Now, originally we'd planned just to go possibly a, a few hundred kilometres on a rail trail, but by the end of the day, I'd mapped out this route across America. Within the space of a couple of months, we were over in America and we cycled 5,600 kilometres from Washington State right across the other side of America, Washington, D.C. And what I like to explain to people is that the trip had nothing to do with an actual bicycle and the actual pedalling. It had everything to do with his love of movement, and then that provided him a safe place for him to learn and then learned through the instructions, which were those auditory instructions of which mum and dad would supply him with on a daily basis. And we created a curriculum that was like a live television screen that, that, that came alive and that we could talk about the number plates and the road signs. And by the time we got halfway across America, our son that was nonverbal at that stage started to use some words again. And I'll never forget being in a hotel and he started to walk around the, the, the hotel and start to go, that says fire extinguisher, that says exit. And it tells you one thing right there is that when you start to believe in yourself, everything and anything's possible and that we should always assume competence and never presume incompetence. Which is absolutely the key of really the, the, the ICANN network, as you've said. Now, I think we're going to... Clearly, Patch is blessed by the parents he has and the era he's in. And I, I guess I'm the, the fear is a lot of times that the parents just, for no fault of their own, just don't have the tools, the awareness, the abilities, the you know, the to, to kind of cope or to make the best of a situation. And I think that's probably, you know, as it sits, one of the great challenges for autistic people is uh, having the right support network around them for me clearly you know there's no blame attached to my parents but clearly they didn't pick up or you know they didn't get me diagnosed or look into it or whatever I did it myself as an as an adult so the importance of parents you know understanding and advocating and gathering the right tools is clearly crucial to an autistic child's life and also I think it's, it's fair to say for for, for parents of autistic kids who, who, who aren't on the spectrum, it's, it's an incredibly hard life that most normal parents of neurotypical kids will never truly understand. And, and unfortunately, you know, in a bad way too, like it's, it's very hard to explain them how, how hard life is. Clearly for me, it's a bit different. I'm an autistic dad with an autistic kid and a neurotypical wife and a five-month-old baby. So, you know, mm. you, you, there's, your, there's a big mix. But the parenting thing is obviously really critical as you've well and truly identified and you've well and truly taken the ball and run with it. So I want to just touch on the, the podcast, the, the Parenting Spectrum podcast. Clearly, the focus is about parenting, which, you know again, is, is critical. Do you want to just quickly, for those that 
aren't aware of it. Tell us a bit about how it came about and obviously just tell us a bit about the Parenting Spectrum podcast. Yeah, sure, sure. It's the kind of, I think it's the love of my life because that's one of my passions is to talk about autism. So the ABC was looking for storytellers and, and content makers a, a couple of years ago and they had a community uh, budget uh, and they were wanting to hear from community members to tell their stories or come up with good good content for the ABC to put out on, on a podcast. And so Fiona and I sat down over many, many weeks and we put together a pitch was which was about telling um, our story but telling it by hearing the stories of other people on the autism spectrum. So that was really important to us is to be able to hear uh, from autistic people, uh, either verbally or through commentary through an AAC device. And so that was a little bit of a difference there for, for, for starters for the ABC is that we were hearing those stories from nonverbal autistics. And so what we really wanted to achieve, and I believe that we've, we've actually done that, is that we wanted to be able to provide some support for the community um, by helping them with those those questions that Fiona and I had early on in our life. And even though that I've worked in behaviour for you know more than 20 years, I've learned that uh, I still know nothing. I've still got to le- a lot to learn every single day of my life when it, when it comes to autism. And so if I could pr- make a, the content which was going to be supporting parents like Fiona and myself when, when Patch was first diagnosed, that's what we were attempting to achieve. And so we created episodes which were about diagnosis and, and it really went into how we felt as a family and what that would mean for, for Patch. And we created episodes on understanding your child, which kind of dives into, you know, what's stimming and, and what do you do when your child has a, has a meltdown. And it, it really embraced some beautiful relationships between younger autistic people and, and older autistic people coming together. And we looked at uh, safety, which is a real heart-wrenching episode that looks at, um, you know, statistics around childhood drowning and how do we keep children safe around water. We dived into education and and school rules and how it's very, very different for every single child. And we looked at sleep, and sleep's a big issue and something we talk about. I'm going to knock some wood there because (laughs) (laughs) it's something that we don't get on a regular basis. Uh, still as still as a family, yep. and uh, we made an episode about travel and the joys of travel and how we can support autistic people to uh, have great adventures around the world. And we heard from autistic people giving us their advice and and their opinions as well. And that was that was fabulous, absolutely fabulous. And I got to travel on a train with a good friend of mine, Riley, who's autistic, and he just shared his passion and and love of uh, trains and what it means to him and and so travel means different things for different people it's not just about going on a bike overseas it can be the local excursion and then we spoke to some people about um, what happens to your child when they're they grow up and they're in adulthood and then we finish on a very special episode which is more or less a wanting to help other parents understand how they can actually take care of themselves and so we produced a a self-care episode uh, where Fiona and I <laughs> went through a, a grueling process to uh, become healthy uh, on the inside and obviously in the, in the mind and, and in the body and the soul. And so it's a, it's a cracking episode. But, and this is, the, this is the wonderful thing, the unexpected gains. 
the the gains of the allied health professionals and the educators in Australia listening to the podcast, even though it was pitched to support parents, it's actually worked to support educators and allied health professionals in the role and that they do with our children and their understanding of autism. And isn't that amazing? And, and that's the power of, of podcasts. And if you haven't heard the parenting spectrum, please go and find it. It's an ABC podcast. It's it's very easy to find because it's just bloody successful. And uh, you can you can find it and check it out. It's it's extraordinary. A lot of things you said then kind of refer to what I wanted to ask you. Being a dad of, of an autistic kid, and clearly many parents of autistic kids listen. So, what have you discovered uh, over your journey that you would want to tell a parent who maybe just has a new diagnosis with a child? The most important things they should know and do for their for their autistic child because it can, it can be like my experience is you get a diagnosis and then it's like see you later they look yeah after, yeah yeah look yeah, after the kid that, look after the mm. kid and here's how to look after the kid but i gave my wife an analogy when you get pregnant when you have a baby you know how the hospital gives you like a government funded baby bag or something full of stuff um and it's got you know like nappies and baby information and all that kind of stuff well that's great, but what about when you get a child diagnosed with autism? Where's my government-funded bag about how to raise a child with autism? It doesn't exist. That's my analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, what, what have you got? Yeah, yeah, there's no helicopter that comes in and says, yeah, there's your little support kit. This is exactly what you need to do. And obviously, one of the reasons I think that uh, organisations have been hesitant with regards to that is because every child is obviously very, very different and unique in their own way. And But it still doesn't make it easy for us as the parent that uh, yes, we understand our child, but yes, we we are not the expert in the understanding of behaviour and communication and socialisation and motor planning and 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 sensory sensitivities. Um, and we were expecting that, and we, and we we just didn't get it. And Fiona and I didn't receive that back from from those professionals. We felt really really alone. And I'll never forget Fiona and I sitting in a ball in bed in a kind of fetal position and bawling our eyes out because not because we were necessarily concerned about our son and his future, but because we were totally lost. We just didn't have any idea of, of what to do next. And, you know, and Google's a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> so it, it takes you on a path that you, you kind of wish you, that you didn't, you know, head down because you get completely lost in, you know, the wealth of information and, and trying to work out where your child sits within, within the realms of that. And so, I think the, the the advice I give the parents, and I run workshops on this, and I and I do keynote presentations to support families and and parents. So I guess, you know, I've got hundreds of different types of ideas, but I guess I've got a few that maybe I can share that that uh, is really important for parents. Is it? Right. Is number one is I guess you know is to remember that your child's awesome, and try to develop that that positive mindset right from the beginning because we're going to hear things that we don't like that stereotype our children and, and put them in a box. And, and so that if we as the adults, as the mum and dad, the carer of our children, the nurturing people that we are, if we can use that positive language that we wish others around us were using about our child, that can have a positive impact on our child and the way that we think about our child and our family unit. So your child's awesome. Uh, the second one, and this is something that I've really learnt off making the parenting spectrum, is that please listen to autistic voices and commentary. We've advanced our understanding about autism so much since the development of technology and the use of social media and the growth of platforms that share stories. 
And so many autistics have so many incredible stories and ideas and strategies that we can use to support our own child. Now, I'll be honest, not all of them are going to actually help or support your own individual child, but many may. And I guess we are, in essence, one of the experts within our own family unit as a parent. And so if we can take on board those little snippets that those individuals are sharing through those stories and the knowledge that they've got from lived experience, we can then adapt that knowledge for our own child's benefit. And I reckon that's pretty cool that that's happening in Australian society, that organisations and schools are starting to listen to autistic voices and commentary because for so many years it just hasn't happened. Absolutely. All right, next one. <laughs> I've got a heap, but I'm going to try and, you know, bring them a few of them together. Is to create positive associations for your child. Now, if we can create as many different quality world pictures as possible, I truly believe that this helps children's interests and that leads to strengths. So if we look at the way that a child learns, you know, whether it's visual, read, writer, kinesthetic, auditory, and then try and build that around some of their interests and we can develop those positive associations so they're having good times and so they're building good memories, that's going to lead to strengths. And so if we use those strengths and interests and we can develop a curriculum around it, that helps build resilience and perseverance. And I'll use the example of Patch here. He's a little boy that went from one side of America to the other. When he got about halfway, I bought him a little kind of tag-along bike that went on the back and he started to pedal. Now, he had that on the back of the bicycle for, for about a 1,000 kilometres and he pedalled most of the way the wrong way. And But it didn't matter because he was having a go at it and he was really, really enjoying it. And remember, the trip wasn't about the bike. What happened, because we were using his love of movement, he started to really get excited about bicycles because of that love of movement, that little, that little interest, that little spark. And then when we came back to Australia, we did a trip in, through the desert and that was along uh, the Mawson Trail. And it was hardcore. It was fantastic. He loved it. He was out and about amongst nature and the animals. And what that meant is that I put pedals on the front of this semi-recumbent tandem and he started to pedal. Now, I think we covered six or 700 kilometres on that journey off the top of my head. And he had that on the front of the bicycle for around about 120-odd kilometres that he would pedal. Backwards sometimes, forwards many times. And then I bought a tandem bike. He sat behind me and he learned to pedal the right direction. And then I bought him, and this is many, many bikes later, I bought him his own BMX bike because he had the balance. Now, Patch has a, very much some motor planning differences. And so it took a lot of, a lot of work to, to build that core and that strength in his body. And so now he can ride his own bicycle. Wow. And so if we look at the example of using strengths and interests, that an initial strength or that interest was the love of movement. We turned it into, into something for him so that now if he falls off the bike, so to speak, he's more likely to get back on the bike because he's good at it and he loves it and he's keen on it. And I truly believe a resilience program is not a standalone program. It's built into the way of living and, and, and the curriculum within, it should be within the curriculum of school, schools, because if we're good at something, we're more likely to get back on that bike. And that's what perseverance is. is and that's what resilience means. Right? <laughs> Relationships. So if, if I could turn back the clock and I could start again from day one, I'd be less 
stressed and less worried about starting behavioural programs that were concentrating on his deficits and I'd be more inclined to concentrate on building a connection with my son and building a relationship. And so for me, I wouldn't be in a hurry to tick some of those developmental boxes. That's that's my opinion. I would be more inclined to be sitting down and connecting with my son over the smallest of things that I could find that were his interests. And from that, I would then try to build strengths out, out, of, out of those those interests. And, and so I'd make sure I was spending as much time with my son as possible, ensuring that those times we were building positive memories. And from out of that, this is something that uh, I guess is one of my, of my pet dislikes when, we, when our kids go to school is that uh, often if your child goes to school and they've got limited communication, they see it as communication as teaching it at particular moments in time as opposed to using communication all the time. And so the communication is the key to providing independence for your child because it provides them with choice and control over their lives. And so I would love the world to be using whatever means of communication the individual has at all times. And that means if you're at school, that iPad, it's not in the bag. That iPad is not on the teacher's desk. That iPad is on the table and there's an expectation that that's going to be used and it's going to be guided and it's going to be taught as that communication tool. And so one of the things that I got out of the parenting spectrum is from um, several of the nonverbal autistics that I interviewed and I spoke to in detail afterwards is that us as the parents, we can control a lot of that in our home life. It's difficult when your child goes to school. Often we don't know what's going on and how these tools are being used to a full extent. But in the home, get it out, use it, expect that it's used, keep the standards high, make sure they're having a positive association with it because in the long run, they're going to have a greater opportunity in life because you've given them more choice and control. Now, I've already mentioned presuming competence and for me it's just something that is it's something that it should be happening but it's something that often doesn't and for me I remember these things I developed these negative associations being in a room full of professionals and the role of the eyes when I said something that Patch has said to me verbally and yet they're never hearing Patch talk and it reminds me that I'm his advocate and that those individuals in the room need to listen to what I'm saying as a parent and take that on board. And something, the presumption of competence, I think, is very difficult for a lot of people to get their, for them to get their head around, even though it's a very easy concept. Assume that the person understands what <laughs> you're saying. Uh, there's no reason that we need to put that into baby talk. Why are we still doing uh, circles and squares and one pl- number one, number two, number three, number four, et cetera, when the child's 10, 11, 12 years old? They should be doing the exact curriculum that every other child is doing in that classroom. And because being nonverbal doesn't mean that your child doesn't understand what you're talking about. And uh, when we come to our role as a parent, I think it's really important to remember that. Our child has the same human rights as every other child on the planet. And for us as a parent, when we've got a child with a disability, it can often feel like like we're running an ultra marathon. And the piece of advice that I give to 
parents when their child has that early diagnosis is that you need to look after your own health and you need to ensure that you're eating well, you're exercising and that if you can, you're getting enough sleep Um, because it is a long haul for many, many parents and the way that you feel as a parent is going to impact the way that you interact with the people that are supporting your child. And so if we can be that positive, vibrant, upbeat person, even when times are tough and sometimes you want to throw in the towel, you've got a little bit of that resilience because you've looked after yourself and you've taken the time to kind of take a step back where you can you can analyse something and you can reflect and then you can put forward that advice and that piece of education that you you want your child's therapist or support worker or, um, you know, professional to be able to, to work with. And I think that's, you know, I think that's so, that's so critical. Uh, My wife and I always, you know, always have the, the issue where when you just haven't had enough sleep or you just haven't been able to do anything that you needed to do, you start to, you start to lose the ability to, to stay calm when there's a tornado around you and it can you make a great point I mean for parents listening it's something you probably don't even think about because your life just becomes doing your best to provide a safe warm encouraging environment you know for a young autistic child and people don't realize what that takes I mean it's it's an extraordinary task on a minute by minute by minute basis and it's tiring and you're right you know and it's different for for everybody and uh you know I look I've gone through times in in uh, in Patch's life, and he's ten years old now. Where back in 2013, I ran 12 marathons in 12 months to raise autism awareness, uh, because I wanted to support the organisations that were supporting um, children like my son before the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Now I was as fit as I come. I was running sometimes at 11 o'clock at night until two o'clock in the morning, or I'd get up at two or three in the morning and run for four hours and then come home and would do therapy all day long. And I was invincible. And then the wheels fell off for whatever reason. And I put weight on. And all of a sudden, instead of going for a run, uh, I was sitting on the couch and then I started to feel depressed about myself. And then I made up excuses that I didn't have time to be looking after myself. But I reflect back now, and, and this has happened so many times over the last 10 years in terms of my own fitness levels, um, I've realised now that when Patch is the happiest, I'm the happiest. Yeah. And that means that I need to look after myself because if I'm happy, he's he's on top of the world. And so realise that our, how much our own behaviour can affect those around us and to be honest about it and to and to be vulnerable about it as well as difficult as that might be and and for many parents some some parents are single parents and they're doing and they're doing it really really tough and maybe it's just a case of hey instead of you know putting on netflix if you, that's what you're doing when you're at the end of the hard day and that might be at 11 o'clock at night maybe just before you click that netflix button do half a dozen lunges uh, to, to stretch your, your your legs out or, you know, a 10 sit-ups or, or whatever it is, or to think about instead of doing Uber Eats tonight, maybe there's another way that I can make a quick meal uh, and a healthy meal instead yeah. of uh, something that's going to make me feel pretty depressed after eating it. So, like, we're responsible, I guess, for, for our own behaviour, but we're also responsible for the way that we interact with our child's behavior and i think for this question maybe finish finish on this one as a as a point for some parents to consider 
is that stimming is okay. And it's that self-stimulatory behavior that's going to help regulate your body. And so for us, Patch, he stims on leaves. Now, unless he's eating a leaf product which is poisonous, it then becomes not okay. And obviously that we need to um, support him through that, through various, various means to understand that that's not okay for him to stim on that particular item and to consume that item. And, he, and Patrick, by the way, has given me permission to talk about this. And one of the things I like to say to parents, you know, imagine, you know, a child's tapping their pen in class, um, teacher reacts to that, and the teacher says, hey, look, can you stop tapping that pen on the table? And yet that pen is actually helping the child regulate whatever information is 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 coming into the, into their 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 brain and also within the environment around them and so um, maybe a conversation that parents need to have with their classroom teacher is to their child's classroom teacher is to say hey look my child stims sometimes these stims change on a regular basis uh, let's keep the lines of communication really open in terms of what's what's happening um, I'll provide you with some advice as to why they are possibly doing that particular stim. I'll provide you with some strategies. And one of the strategies that we like to use in our, our house, and it actually helps support them, is to maybe just ignore the stim. It's, it's actually supporting them regulate in your classroom, and therefore you're actually accommodating their individual needs, and therefore you don't have to manage a particular behaviour because it's actually supporting them in your classroom and so so many tips <laughs> well, there sure was which, which, but you know what it's great and i and i just want to quickly talk about stimming is something that i obviously still do as an as an adult it's not something you really outgrow as you say you know it's that kind mm. of self you know stimulatory self-stimulation and people automatically think oh you mean to get excited no no it's like a regulation it's like almost a calming so it's super critical um to to allow that uh, because that's actually keeping you in a place where you feel happy and at, and at peace or bringing you back there. And I think what you oh, say, yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I think what you say, it leads me into the next question. It's the perception of people that aren't autistic or don't have autistic kids. The perception of, you know, neurotypical people with neurotypical kids tend to, you know, look at that and go, why is he always so fidgety? Why is he always playing with these? What's, why is a grown man walking around with therapy? You know, like I like to, you know, use like legit blue therapy they're a putty that you can bounce and it's hard and you can pull it and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. If they just forgot about it, so like, well, hang on a second. I always think to myself, well, hang on a second. I, I've, I've been keeping my mouth shut about your 700 quirks. Why can't you help me? when I like, seriously, I, I'm allowed to stim, but it is an education thing. And my wife and I have already found with our son, who's finishing kinder and going into a primary school. We've already found that you know, when, you know, he, my son has, um, what would you call him, Travis? When he when he gets when it gets too much for him, I guess it's a meltdown, and he can become potentially aggressive, or he can't control his body, or he might scare kids, and sometimes he might even might even hurt kids in that in that moment. Automatically, the the neurotypical parents judge us and look down on us, and you know we feel it makes us feel really horrible. And I always tell my wife, remember, they wouldn't judge a, a child for having a seizure. Right, and then and then scaring people or hurting people because he was having a seizure. Well, that's just what's happening when in this situation. It's not something that our son can pull himself out of. That he's, he's, there's no control going on in that situation, and they should have saw the warning signs and kind of helped out. But it's it's something that we really 
are struggling with, and it's going to be a long-term thing with our son going into primary school, the kind of judgment of parents when we really can't, I mean, we can't say, oh, you know what? No worries. We'll dial down his autism today for you and hopefully that'll make you feel a bit better. But what what can you say to neurotypical parents with you know neurotypical kids if they do kind of fall into the trap of, of judging and excluding uh, autistic kids and their parents? Well, it's really, really difficult in the heat of the moment, isn't it? If there's... Uh, your child is struggling uh, with the sensory environment and they ha- may have shut down or had an overlo- overload or a, or a meltdown. And you're in a supermarket and there's there's that judgment or there's that comment. Now, I've made so many mistakes over the years, but I've learned from those as well. And so one of the things that I try to do as a you know professional speaker is that when I go to, to talk to an audience that doesn't live the life that we do on a daily basis or doesn't have the understanding of autism is that I try to get them to imagine what their child can learn from my child as a result of being immersed with them, as a result of including them within your activities and your environment. And this is really exciting news that's come out because the Children and Young People with Disability Australia released their research, which contained over 400 research papers that were examined on the evidence base for inclusive education. Now, what happened there is that the report confirmed that when we include children such as my son and your child in the same classroom, it benefits them academically, behaviourally, socially, their communication and their physical development. Now, this is where it gets even more exciting So my son and your child, regardless of their disability level, their severity, how profound their disability is, they are also benefiting. But to the parent that's in the supermarket that's rolling their eyes, if we can get the following information out to them, it's going to change the way that they think about our child. Because the evidence says that inclusive education leads to increased and improve learning opportunities for students without disability when my kid's in their classroom. And how awesome is that? Absolutely. And they have to start to understand this because when kids like our kids, when they leave school and they go out into the big wide world, which they're part of every day anyway, but when it comes to workplace placements, they are the child that's neurotypical. They need to understand how to interact they need to understand how to accommodate. They need to understand how to make our little boys or girls feel included and embraced and help, help them to learn and to guide them. And if we aren't having children with a disability in a classroom with children without a disability, we are doing the children with a disability and the, the other children without disability a disservice later on in life. And uh, so I would say to that parent that's doing the judging and excluding in the, the supermarket when I'm doing a public presentation is just listen to the evidence. The evidence actually supports our kids being in the, in the classroom, in the supermarket with your kid. Get over it. We're here. We're here to stay. <laughs> and, your, and your kid is going to learn from my child. Exactly. Well, that's right. And uh, do you, so I, th- I think evidence-based stuff like that, do you think that's kind of the way forward to cultivate a more inclusive, embracing, embracing mindset in the community? Just going, just going to the evidence-based stuff that actually shows a benefit for both. Oh, look! I mean, yeah. Look, 
it's a it's a strange thing when you start to think about the benefits of both. But and I think that's really important. But we need to concentrate on that actual individual as a starting point, the actual individual that has the disability, and that we we can put in those accommodations uh, to begin with. That's where the inclusive education really starts from, and it starts with you know listening to the voice of the individual that has a disability, and that voice may be through an AAC device, or they may actually not have the use of that voice at that time, and that's in terms of pointing as well. And they may not they not may not have the capacity to be able to do that 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 particular time, but we may know their interests, and that forms part of that voice in terms of the decision making that goes on in terms of the inclusive education. That, that's happening in the in the classroom. And so it's really important that these inclusive environments include the person on the, this disability in terms of the decision making, but they make them feel safe, they make them feel happy, they make them feel you know accommodated so that they've got the choice and control, which leads to that independence, that the inclusive environment has that that positive dialogue that the, the people that are working with your children are developing those positive associations and those positive memory banks. Most importantly, your child's learning in that educational environment and they feel part of something. They don't feel isolated in any, in any way. They're not segregated. They're actually part of that community. And that community that they're involved in um, is actually has a plan to actually cater for their individual differences and individual needs, as opposed to the individual with a disability just trying to fit into that current system or that current environment with no accommodations or adjustments made. Hey, Travis, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been such a great chat and thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's great to talk. My guest was Travis Saunders, education consultant, autism advocate, public speaker and host of the ABC podcast, The Parenting Spectrum. My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. Online at orionkelly.com.au. Thank you so much for listening to My Friend Autism. I really do appreciate it. And if it's resonated with you, this particular episode or the series as a whole, well, I'd love it if you would share it with your family and friends so we can reach more people. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, suggest a topic or area of autism to explore or just say hi, you can like the Orion Kelly Facebook page or send me a message via my website, orionkelly.com.au. That's O-R-I-O-N-K-E-L-L-Y.com.au. This podcast is here to break down stigmas and misconceptions around autism while providing real insights into life on the spectrum. Together, we can make the world a better place for autistic people. Remember, once you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. All I'm asking is for you to open your hearts and minds to people a little bit different to you and embrace the benefits of neurodiversity. Until next time, thanks for opening your mind and embracing differences. You've been listening to My Friend Autism with Orion Kelly. To join the conversation, get in touch with Orion and never miss an episode. Like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook or visit orionkelly.com.au. 